Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast, a podcast about theology, culture, and discipleship. And this is episode 113. On today's episode, we're talking about Paul and supersessionism with Dr. J. Brian Tucker. Dr. J. Brian Tucker is professor of New Testament and dean of faculty at Moody Theological Seminary at the Plymouth campus in Michigan. He's also the author of Reading Romans After Supersessionism, published by Cascade. Team members on the episode from the two cities include Dr. Chris Porter, Dr. Chris Song, and myself, Dr. John Anthony Dunn. So carrying on in our conversation on Christian anti-Judaism, in this conversation, we dig a little bit more into supersessionism and talk a little bit more widely about some of its implications, especially thinking about its implications for the church. I really appreciate how Dr. Tucker linked this issue of supersessionism to other problems that we might have in the church, whether it be sort of misogyny or, or racism more broadly. And these, these other issues, I, th- I thought that was just a really helpful uh, thing for us to think about. What were some of the takeaways that that you all had from our conversation with Dr. Tucker? Uh, I really appreciated how uh, Dr. Tucker sort of highlighted the fact that obviously this is a fraught issue. People come to it with particular questions, sometimes very loaded questions. And Dr. Tucker reminding us and you know wanting to bring it back to were the questions that we have necessarily the questions that Paul was dealing with and that uh, was specific to the communities that he was ministering to. And I think it's a really important distinction to make because far too often we really want to just jump to uh, the, the the pressing questions that that are often debated or or that that, you know, for one reason or another, we have an axe to grind. And so I thought that was really a really good uh, takeaway for me. Yeah, I really appreciated the methodological rigor that comes from Brian's work and especially how he approaches it through the lens of critical theory and through the lens of sociological theories and more specifically social identity theory. I think that really aids in stepping back from the coalface, if you like, and being able to assess things without the theological presumptions that come from that and then coming to that with with fresh eyes and especially because that then drives uh, his research into the ethical space as well it has something to say to the church and has something to say to the 21st century not just the first century all right and here's our conversation with dr tucker Thanks so much for joining us, Dr. Tucker. Well, it's great to be here. So how about we begin by talking a little bit about your work on Paul? What are some of the things that animate the research that you do? I think I got interested in in Paul because um, really nobody studies Paul. <laughs> so it was like, hey, this is something I could do that nobody else has done. And uh, so for me, it was just really thinking about uh, the influence uh, that he has on the way people engage in the church and way students that I teach uh, think they know they know Paul. And uh, so that got me interested. And then kind of, you know, being raised in what some might describe kind of more marginalized uh, church settings kind of made me wonder how these like, power differentials are always occurring and almost always pointing to Paul, whether it's something to do with gender or Jew, Gentile issues and kind of race or ethnicity that comes from that. And so it just seemed to me like this was a really good place to, to land um, 
in terms of me just thinking a bit about the influence um, and positive and negatives uh, that he's had and continues to have. In your research, you work through the lens of social identity theory, uh, as as I do as well. And for those listening on the podcast, uh, Brian was my one of my supervisors for my uh, doctoral work, so uh, we we know each other fairly well uh, through that. But in in your in, in that approach to thinking about Paul, uh, and especially thinking about those cultural issues uh, that go on, especially in in, in this context of uh, is Paul a Jew? How how well is Paul, how much is Paul a Jew? Um, after all, Paul does say you know, to the Corinthians, to the to the Jews, I'm a Jew, but to to those who who um, are not, I, I I do act like a Jew. Then, how does social identity theory help you? Uh, in approaching those sort of questions, uh, how does it assist in reading Paul? I started my uh, doctoral uh, research. Uh, my doctoral supervisor, uh, Bill Campbell, been working on the way that Gentile identities or Jewish identities continue in Christ. And, uh, and I was looking at that and I was like, well, what about Gentile identities? And because you have 1 Corinthians 12, 2, and it says, when you were Gentiles, it makes it sound like, you know, this isn't uh, uh, an identity that continues. And so that uh, quickly sent me into uh, thinking more about groups rather than individuals. And so oftentimes when I see identity, they're talking about personal identity, where social identity theory is really talking about, you know, the part of the individual's self-concept, which derives from their knowledge of the membership in a social group or groups, and then the value and the emotional significance they attach to it. And so that got me thinking about this sense of usness or groupness that we see in a lot of texts. And you mentioned Paul, so you have like even Philippians uh, 3.5, when he talks about being circumcised of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, and a Pharisee. Uh, and so it got me just thinking a bit about these collective identities that kind of identify themselves over several different aspects and the way that this was in a lot of ways causing the problems uh, that we see uh, in the, uh, the text of scripture. And, uh, and so I started looking at the theory. I can see, oh, wow, somebody else has been doing this already. And there's this guy named Philip Essler. And I'm like, oh, he's already solved it. So I don't need to worry about it. But I noticed he was really focusing on conflict. And, and so it really became kind of an in-group, out-group thing. And, uh, and in that case, those existing identities are kind of irrelevant. And so uh, I wondered about recategorizing existing uh, identities, and that opened up uh, some research space for me to to jump into the topic. So then, in this in this context of supersessionism, mm. how does that help us? We think think through the existing identities at play uh, here. I mean, Paul is treading that fine line between being a, a, a an observant Jew on one hand, and also the apostle to the Gentiles, uh, as he's often called. Uh, on the other, um, within that that context, it can feel sometimes a bit like the approach to the to Gentile mission in the Pauline letters is inherently supersessionistic. That uh, there is a replacement methodology or some form of um, inheritance or uh, what whatever the, the con- construct that um, has been chosen for that. Uh, how does that? help us to, to wrestle with that. Yeah, I think when we see these passages, that kind of alerts us to the idea that some of these passages can be read that way because they've been read that way. That also raises some questions for me in terms of should they be read that way? 
uh, or are there categories that have been overlooked uh, because of what I described in other settings, a, a fossilization of Christian identity? And they just kind of get locked into that. And one of those is really in this area uh, that you mentioned in terms of supersessionism. And so you'll see things like, you know, when Paul talks about Jews and Greeks, and they just kind of see it as throwaway lines and rather than seeing that these are load-bearing uh, for how he, he looks at issues. And in that case, then it really raises questions uh, in terms of, is Paul an essentialist when it comes to, to this? And so does he say, well, the Gentiles, you know, the only problem is you, you by definition can't be circumcised on the eighth day. And so it kind of lines with Jubilees and it kind of works that way. Or is he thinking in, in kind of other categories uh, with regard to kind of Jew Gentile or, or Jew Greek uh, divider? So, so one thing I tried to kind of lay out is that that's, that's load bearing. That's not just throwaway line. And so in that case, then that raises a specific question with regard to uh, the supersessionism part in terms of like defining that. And, you know, every time I, I see a definition of supersessionism, uh, you know, it's like, well, of course, if that's your definition, this is, this is your starting point and no wonder you're going to end up where you end up. And uh, so if I just use like a, a thumbnail uh, definition of like an interpretive stance that maintains that uh, the ecclesia or what we think about the church, kind of in Messiah Jews and non-Jews uh, have fulfilled and replaced Israel and God's plan, that kind of gets us at least moving uh, you know, down a path to talk about some of the sub arguments that might be associated uh, with him. So, so Paul then uh, can be a friend because uh, he could talk about, you know, that uh, uh, God's uh, calling on Israel uh, continues. Uh, and then some he can say he can be a foe because he seems to be uh, setting uh, aside uh, his Jewish identity uh, in place of this new cherished uh, identity in Christ. Uh, can I uh press you to just maybe continue that thumbnail a little bit more. Just maybe uh, what's the flyover view for you in terms of how you see Paul's uh, ministry to the Gentiles fitting in with maybe I, you know, obviously now speaking for Paul, like if we could sort of see what part of the plan he is uh, uh, taking a part in and then how he imagined, you know, these, these things to coordinate. Obviously, once we all can, if we all can agree like under sort of the big tent, okay, we're not supersessionists. There's obviously still a lot of different forms of non-supersessionism. So I just wanted to at least get a sense from you where, you know, what's, what's the flyover landscape look like for you? When I was looking at the, the review of um, my reading Romans after supersessionism book in RBL, the reviewer, the first thing they're like, his ideology comes out right off the bat because his first line is Paul was no supersessionist. And I was like, I knew I shouldn't have left that in there. It's solved. I don't need the other 180,000 words. It wasn't that many words, but you get the point. So, yeah. So for me, he's part of a Jewish mission to the nations. Uh, that's one part of that kind of flyover. And it's uh, designed to declare God's gospel and to bring the obedience of faith among the Gentiles. And so for me, that comes right from Romans 1 and, you know, verse 1 and verse 5. And so, so by, by thinking that category, that keeps us in, in the framework that this isn't, this isn't a Christian mission uh, in that sense. And, uh, and then it's, it's uh, the declaring of the gospel, right? Then it becomes, okay, well, what do we mean by that and, and defining that? And, uh, and so then that's where Galatians starts to come in, in terms of, is there two forms of the one gospel? 
uh, you know, it helps us to see uh, that there are different social implications that emerge from that gospel. Uh, and is the gospel only addressing the kind of classical, when you die, you get to go to heaven? Uh, or is it dealing with human flourishing and the more broad uh, issues uh, than just kind of the traditional kind of soteriological uh, or soterian approach to, to the gospel? So, yeah, so, so I want to see him as, as part of a relational network, that he's not out there like the Lone Ranger rounding up uh, end-time Gentiles, you know, that he's, he's really part of a group. And that, that kind of view of Paul is really later that gets read back into, you know, to Paul. And so I just see him as, you know, as an ongoing uh, debating partner uh, with a lot of people that wonder uh, about uh, what, what this small group of people are talking about, saying that uh, Israel's Messiah has come. In Joel Kaminsky and Mark Reasoner's Harvard Theological Review article in which they um, critique N.T. Wright's view of election, there's a footnote where they talk about supersessionism and they say that basically some level of supersessionism is sort of inevitable within Christianity and it's the more pernicious forms of supersessionism that they are concerned with. Perhaps we might make a distinction between capital S supersessionism and lowercase s supersessionism or something along those lines. I'm not sure if this is language that you're comfortable with, but I wonder if you might speak to this idea of inevitable supersessionism when we're talking about the nature of the Pauline mission and the expansion of this message about Jesus to the nations. Yeah, I mean, think about the the issues of the, like the, the different aspects of supersessionism and uh, even soft supersessionism versus hard supersessionism. Uh, even when I was working on uh, the Romans book, I was like, I just want to use the word supersessionistic and uh, to kind of dial it back a little bit because, you know, I, I, I sometimes wonder, do we see like the full-throated uh, supersessionist that we saw from earlier generations, kind of like the, you know, Herman Ritterboss with, the church is the is the people of God of the new covenant, and they've taken the place of Israel. Do we see that? Well, no. They usually play nicer, right? So they use language a little bit different, or they'll nuance or protect themselves in a footnote. And and so uh, so the way that we even critique uh, other uh, living authors becomes important. So so for me, uh, even, even though I think about this in different different ways, I think for here I would want to say uh, is the the implication of your reading disaggregate the peoplehood of Israel. And if it does, then I see that that is a, a supersessionist. So, um, so when we think about aspects, we're talking about Israel's identity was only preparatory uh, for the Messiah, right? This is, you know, I'm, I'm all in because they're there to, to get the Messiah there. Um, that, that seems to be uh, supersessionist. That Israel's lost its covenantal identity uh, when it rejected the Messiah. Right, that one that one pops up in a lot of churches. See that as supersessionist, and then uh, Israel's story collapsing into the story of Messiah, and has no continuing relevance. Right, whether this is the redefined uh, people of God around Messiah, and and so so I kind of see those uh, are the ones that tend to kind of come out uh, on a regular basis, and uh, and so what I'm kind of part of in terms of a group of scholars is just a group that generally can be described as uh, like the within Judaism approach, uh, but also we use the language of post-supersessionism uh, to say that, um, all right, there, there needs to be a way uh, to, to move beyond uh, these traditions uh, that, um, uh, that have really 
uh, caused problems, ethical problems uh, for the way uh, the gospel is heard in the world. Uh, this might be a good time to talk a little bit about um, the series, uh, the After Supersessionism series that you uh, were a part of, um, uh, along with David Rudolph and Justin Harden. Is is there sort of a, a platform that unites uh, the the various contributions to the series, um, or you know, or is there a significant amount of play within some of these larger categories that give shape to to the contributions? And of course, it's this, it's obviously developing and, and progressing. We, we haven't seen all of them. And, um, but just wanted to get your thoughts on the series as a whole. Yeah, so the, uh, several years ago, a uh, group of us uh, getting together and talking about uh, the possibility of a, a series that eventually became the New Testament after supersessionism. And, uh, and we're just kind of thinking around and coming up with ideas and, and what would that look like and what do we even mean by it? Uh, because, I mean, there's, there's people that refer to themselves as non-supersessionists. Uh, I, I think that they tend to be more inward focused and they engage in like ecclesial arguments. Uh, they're not interested in like critical theories, for example. They're not really interested in kind of the uh, academic debates as well as those uh, for the church. And so, so post-supersessionism in that sense picks up on the kind of post-liberal uh, theology. And so it's then, because of that, it's a family of theological perspectives. And uh, so there's there's not just like one, you know, because sometimes students say, so you say you're a post-supersessionist uh, scholar, so, so what does that mean? You know, and I'm like, I know what they're wanting. And I'm like, I'm not going to give you a good answer right now. I'm going to make you wait for that one. Uh, but uh, so it, it affirms God's irrevocable covenant with the Jewish people. And then that's central and it's a coherent part or should be a coherent part of ecclesial teaching. Uh, and then it rejects understandings of the new covenant that entail the abrogation or the obsolescence of God's covenant uh, with the Jewish people. And most people will be okay with those. And then this part, which is that the Torah, it continues to be a demarcator of Jewish communal identity uh, or the Jewish people themselves. And so that's the one that, that tends to you know, uh, start to divide people uh, in terms of, of the way Torah uh, continues, uh, because you have all of those passages that seem to be uh, uh, going the opposite way. So, uh, so yeah, so that's, so that's kind of the idea. So it's, it's really affirming that it's the, the covenant is irrevocable, and that this needs to be a part of uh, the church's teaching, and that uh, uh, any any teaching that argues that um, the identity of the Jew, the covenantal identity of Jewish people is obsolete uh, is seen as a problem, and that the Torah continues to be a demarcator for the Jewish people, and so those uh, then become the the dividing points and the argument points. And so some people hear that and they think religious pluralism, right? They just say, okay, that that means there's two different ways for salvation, and and I don't have any time for that. And uh, so the kind of Sonderweg approach really is, a, is actually a small group uh, within, uh, I'd say the majority of those that are kind of within the post-supersessionist or the within Judaism approach, uh, don't, uh, don't read those texts uh, as kind of a, a dual way for salvation. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Sonderweg approach? That might be a new term for some of our listeners. What exactly is entailed by that. And then given that you had mentioned that the majority of those who 
house themselves in that kind of Paul within Judaism camp, um, if you like, um, don't uphold hold that view. What what's a more consensus approach then? So when uh, we think about the the Sodomeg or this special way uh, for salvation, uh, it really kind of comes out of this uh, this idea of the audience, for example, of the letters. So uh, so. To whom was Paul writing? Was he writing to just people in general? Was he writing to Gentiles? So, for example, in Romans, he says, I'm writing to you, Gentiles. And so some say, okay, so Paul was really addressing Gentile audience. And so he has nothing to say um, in terms of uh, Jewish issues, in terms of uh, salvation. And so so then the argument for uh, this is then Jews continue to... uh, relate to the God of Israel uh, through Torah and uh, the grace and the atonement uh, that's part of that system, and that Christ dies for the nations. And these kind of function then as the two, uh, the two ways. So then when you raise the question in terms of how do we navigate, uh, Paul seems to be talking more than just simply that. I mean, uh, you know, earlier, uh, Chris mentioned 1 Corinthians 9. Paul talks to the Jews, I became a Jew. So that's kind of interesting. And so, so it looks like, and especially when you read Paul in the context of Acts, he is involved in a Jewish mission. And we read Romans 9 to 11, he's clearly worked up over uh, those that are not, uh, not following and picking up on uh, the, the change of time that's occurred uh, that are his uh, ethnic kin. And so, uh, so the, the other approach then says, well, he's still talking to, to Gentiles, uh, and so we don't have to give up on, on being a, you know, clear in terms of the audience. But he, he clearly does uh, understand that Israel's Messiah is relevant for all of humanity. And we don't have to take the categories of Reformed soteriology, uh, that we can look at different categories, maybe uh, more uh, Jewish apocalyptic categories. Uh, to understand ideas of deliverance or um, being safe or what we think of in terms of salvation. And, uh, and so I think what ends up happening is because of the, you know, the earlier work in, uh, in post-liberal theology and a lot of post-supersessionism or was done, when it's done by theologians tend to work in that category, right? How do, how do they work among uh, world religions in a contemporary setting? Whereas New Testament scholars are tending to work in that in terms of first century categories. And, uh, and so, uh, so it is, a, it is a difficult question uh, to, to navigate uh, because it, um, we can't, we can't get a, away from uh, both sides of that uh, because, because for some people, once you say that you need to accept Jesus as Messiah, Jesus as your savior, your Lord, that's supersessionism. And, uh, and I remember, you know, when I, when I was wrestling with this, I just asked, I said, so am I like supersessionist because I'm saying that? And uh, even, even in the, the Romans book, I'm like, I have a little sentence in that says, I'm not trying to overturn Reformation soteriology. And somebody said, well, why not? And I'm like, oh, that's a different question for a, a different day. And, uh, but, the, but the idea being is that, uh, that for Paul, uh, the centrality of uh, of the death of Jesus 
uh, and his resurrection is, is central to his gospel and it's not secondary. And so, so that's a, that's a dividing line. Um, and again, like I said, it's a smaller part. Um, but I think for those within the, within Judaism, uh, we shouldn't assume that they're going to follow, follow um, a Calvinist, uh, you know, soteriology or even a Wesleyan. You know, they, they may be looking for, uh, hopefully, insights from the uh, rest of the world and, and not just Europe and uh, North America in terms of understanding uh, the soteriological discourse of the New Testament. Your response, uh, it opened up so many doors that, um, that we obviously don't have time to go down. But I think one of the things that strikes me um, hearing you talk um, in, in the directions that you have is that I notice in, this, in these debates, there's a lot of pressure to clarity on both sides. So, you know, you have one side saying the church replaces Israel. That's clear on one side. It, it sort of removes any gray areas. And on, even on the other side, you know, you'll have people that are saying, well, Paul's only writing to Gentiles. Uh, his letters evidence, like, you know, no concern or, or um, no message for uh, Jewish, be uh, Jewish believers in the Messiah. And that's clarity sort of on the other side of things. Um, I've also noticed that there's, there's uh, folks that really press, uh, you mentioned apocalyptic, apocalyptic categories, excuse me. Um, that pressed for the idea that, well, Paul didn't have it all figured out. He really thought the world was going to end. And so, yes, he sort of did understand how, you know, how Jews and, and Gentiles can come together um, and uh, welcome one another and have fellowship. But, you know, the details and the particulars of that, he didn't really have worked out because, you know, the world was about to end. And so we just don't have the benefit of, of sort of the, the messy the messy aspects of what life together might have looked like. Um, so, I mean, you know, I know that there's a question embedded in here, but I, you know, I'm, I just wanted to get some of your thoughts in terms of how much, um, how much uh, can we see from Paul that, well, no, he actually does sort of wrestle with some of the, these gray areas. He's not really pressing for some of the clarity on either sides of these debates that I think Paul uh, is trying to be pressed into. One of the things I tend to think about is, um... Our questions are oftentimes not Paul's questions. And uh, I was presenting on Romans 9 uh, at a, an SBL conference. And, you know, a friend of mine, well, previously he was a friend until he asked this question. He's like, so what happens to all the Jewish people between, you know, for the last 2000 years then? I'm like, wow. SBL. This is this is turned into a, a theological discussion pretty quickly, and I was like, "Wait a minute! This this only happens at IBR or ETS or one of the other you know scholarly societies that are interested in that." And uh, and on top of that, there were friends of mine uh, who who were there uh, who have a different perspective um, on on that issue, uh, and so there was a relational uh, part for me, and and so I, I shared that. Um, in terms of the, you know, that our questions oftentimes are, are, weren't Paul's questions. And it felt weird. It felt kind of like a, a cop-out, but I, I know that it wasn't. And I, I know that it was, it was heartfelt on my part. And, and I think the, the eminence uh, in terms of the, the, the kind of end, of end of time from Paul, um, there's a couple within the Paul within Judaism specifically group that really build on that a lot. And um, 
uh, when I look at First Corinthians 7, he has this kind of, in Greek, it's host may, but as if. So you're, you're married, but kind of live as if you're not married. You're, then I'm just like, oh, cool. You know, so like I work, but live as you don't work. I'm like, yes, that's the one I want, you know, so I can tell my boss, sorry, Paul told me that I don't have to really do anything. It's like, no, Tucker, you're just lazy. So anyways, but so, so yeah, it seems like Paul might be thinking in that category, but he also might be thinking that, you know, if, if in the, in the sense of the apocalypse in terms of uh, God of Israel revealing something that, um, that it does affect the, the normal pattern uh, of, the, of the way that we live. And, uh, and so if it's the social category, categories that are there around the Mediterranean basin that uh, led him to answer those specific questions, um, I still think he can help us uh, while recognizing that there's no universal theology, but that theology is always theology in particular. And because of that, we may not get full answers, but uh, we can at least uh, come up with some concepts that help us to render the biblical judgments uh, in clear ways. So often the split between Romans 8 and 9 causes significant consternation, uh, and especially given the history of interpretation of Romans, where uh, Romans is uh, often feels like it's split up into different sections you know, the first four chapters and then the next four chapters. Why, why is it always four chapters in Romans is another matter entirely. But uh, that split between Romans 8 and 9, um, nine uh, where there seems to be a, um, uh, a doxology or, a, or some form of, of uh, hymnic uh, con- finishing of Romans 8, and then he has the great sorrow and grief over, um, over Israel, Interested in uh, how you read that, but also what you would make of whether or not eight thirty-one to thirty-nine and is a interpolation in Paul's thought. Not to say that someone else has written it, but simply that he has gone off on a tangent and then come back into the thought thinking on Romans nine, and whether or not that changes our reading of Romans eight and nine with the adoption of the Hoyasthasia link uh, between those two chapters. So one of the things that happens in the kind of traditional reading of, of Romans is uh, the doctrinal section of, you know, 1 to 11, and then maybe 12 becomes practical, or then we're divided at 1 to 8, and then 9 to, 9 to 16. And uh, when I was trying to make sense of my doctoral supervisor's work, which is very important, that's a survival skill, right, is to make sure you read everything your doctoral supervisor has written. And he has this article on that the, the discourse unit is not 9 to 11, but it's 8 to 11. And I'm like, okay, don't tell him because he won't ever listen to this, right? That's the dumbest thing I've ever heard, right? It's like, there's no way that it's 8 to 11. We know it's 9 to 11 because my study Bible says so, right? If my NIV study Bible says it, then it's got to be right. So anyways, it makes sense. And so I, I think that uh, there is more connection in, in chapter eight. And uh, so, so I, li- I like the suggestion uh, you know, there, Chris, because I think it, it, makes, it makes connection because you start thinking about um, the, the context of then Romans 9, 1 to 5 in these kind of 
what are called the transcending or incorporative readings. But Paul makes clear that these verses, even unbelieving Israelites, are still recipients of God's covenantal privileges. All Jews continue to be God's people, period. And so um, then you get to like verse six, right? But it's not that God's word has failed for all of those who are descended from Israel or Israel. And then you get the, is this an equivocation? Has he changed the, the referent? Um, and, or is he just making a division within Israel? Um, and uh, and so, so maybe that's uh, a, a way to navigate it. Um, but I, I wonder if there's probably two things going on. One is, is our definition of election. And then second, that our only that our assumption is he's only talking about salvation, and uh, and so I just wonder if these kind of get read back, you know, from uh, the categories that we have, and and they're hard for us to break out of those categories. These these are categories that really emerge from Greek and Roman soil, and then we get these kind of creedal developments, and then what happens in Europe later, and then. We, we miss the fact that the gospel has passed through uh, those categories and then they become natural. And then we just assume that that's the, that's the way to understand. And, uh, and so, um, so this, this more kind of full embodied uh, approach uh, might be one way to think about it. Um, but ultimately I can't run away from addressing the questions because these are these are the questions that we've inherited um, at least uh, within a Christian context from the Reformation and uh, and so they're still there but uh, for me uh, I want to try to keep um, the the connection to the soil uh, because especially like in the 21st century North American context where you end up with um, uh, evangelicals that have kind of forgotten the soil from they, they come from. And, uh, and then they don't really have a place for land. They don't have a place for that. And so um, that really uh, starts to have an effect on the kind of uh, soteriology that develops, the kind of ethics that develop, uh, because they don't need a connection to the soil. And so that's where Willie uh, Jennings and others are really helpful uh, to say that the categories are supersessionist and they're baked in uh, to Christian theology from back as early as the fourth century. And so they just carry themselves through. And, uh, and so there's a lot of work that has to be done to say, Hey, there's those categories are not natural. Uh, they're, they were just as particularized as the ones that we wrestle with today. So, yeah. So, so I think that uh, by, by just kind of hermeneutically sealing Romans nine to 11, uh, by itself actually helps us to miss the connections uh, that are there in uh, in the end of chapter eight. Can we just peek over to uh, Romans 14 as well and sort of the discussion there on weak and strong? The debate here, of course, is are these Jew-Gentile type uh, conflicts, um, is is that the type of, of, of welcome that Paul is envisioning or are these uh, different types of conflicts entirely? You know, when you get to chapters 14 and 15 and, and the weak and the strong, uh, when you first read it, it sounds great. And, uh, but um, one of my favorite interlocutors 
likes to say, Paul has introduced a Trojan horse into the debate. And uh, I remember seeing that and kind of going, oh, I, that's a good point. He actually weakens Torah if it's just simply, eh, it doesn't matter. Uh, you know, it's an indifferent thing. It's a DFOR. So the traditional understanding of Paul's guidance in relation to the food laws in Romans 14, 14 and verse 20, then results actually in the erasure of Jewish covenantal identity within the Messiah movement. And so, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if, you're, if the social implications of your reading result in the erasure of Jewish covenantal identity, then I would suggest that it's, it's at least supersessionistic. So in verse 14, as I know and persuaded on the Lord that there's nothing unholy in itself, uh, but it is unholy for the one who considers it unholy, right? And so this kind of becomes the way to say, well, you know, see, he's getting rid of the Levit- Leviticus framework, right? And uh, so, so the word here is koinos. It's uh, probably a word that really develops in, in this uh, later period uh, uh, you know, the run up into the, uh, the New Testament period. And, and it's a, it's a word that's used to, to kind of bring in these, these gray areas. Uh, you think about when uh, the Leviticus framework is being written in its context, and then um, what continues to develop, how do we, how do we account for uh, new, new categories, new foods uh, that need to be addressed? And so, uh, and so that, that, uh, can help us shift away from thinking that Paul is suggesting that we're, he's getting rid of the Leviticus uh, framework for Jews. Um, and so uh, this, uh, this in itself uh, phrase can be really pointing to the idea that he's addressing, is there something uh, ontologically wrong with certain foods uh, rather than seeing that it's imputed uh, based on God's word? which then uh, is great for Gentiles because if Gentiles were ontologically impure, there's no, no chance for, for uh, transition and change. Uh, but, uh, but that's not the case. And then, um, uh, yeah, so, so I think that's one way to kind of navigate uh, this to recognize that he's, he's not uh, doing away uh, with the food laws, but uh, accounting for these gray areas that emerged uh, around the diaspora. And so, uh, so I, and then he talks about uh, that even though, uh, they're strong, um, that they can eat uh, from uh, anything in this gray area, or that impurity is imputed, they still can't do anything that might bring the weak to want to do something that's forbidden to them, even though Paul and the strong believe, that, in fact, there's no basis for the prohibition. And uh, so in a lot of ways, he's, he's carving out space for diverse identities. Uh, so I like to describe this as it's theologically bound, open identity. And it's a model that I like to use uh, even in a 21st century context, because too often there's a rush to say everybody needs to be the same way on this political issue or on this this, uh, cultural issue, but to say, look, there's a core that we can get a hold of theologically, but then it's open. And and of course, to get people to agree to that is is the big challenge. But uh, so the theologically bound, open identity is kind of what I think is going on in this uh, uh, section here in, in Romans 14 and 15. What if somebody was like, Paul's not super sessionistic. He's just a little sessionistic. Yes. So Paul is not super sessionist. He's just a little. Yeah. And, and I, I've tried to think about that because, you know, I, if I, if I want to say that he, he's not going to disaggregate the peoplehood 
of Israel, then I would say uh, it's 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 an on or off. Uh, and so there's kind of a and maybe an equivocation on the idea of peoplehood, you know, the the, the idea that uh, contemporary notions of peoplehood get read back into ancient uh, notions of peoplehood. And, uh, and I think that might, might contribute to that. So, but again, if it's just about the individual, you know, and that's all that Paul's addressing, you know, then, then, uh, then that's the challenge. And of course, that gets back to that earlier question in terms of um, what's the, what's the nature of uh, salvation and how that, how that's occurring. And does Paul think that this was occurring um, uh, before uh, the coming to Christ in light of what, what God was eventually going to do through the Messiah. And so this kind of future possible social identity that's pushing people forward to uh, uh, God's Messiah. And, and now that he's come, uh, then he becomes the focus of, uh, of the redemptive work in the world, uh, which then raises the question to what degree then do I need to be, become a Christian to kind of affirm that, or can I affirm that uh, in, in, in different types of ecclesial contexts even today? With, with the ethical outworking of your thinking about uh, identity and uh, Pauline sessionism or supersessionism or um, some form of uh, identity, communal identity construction. One of the books that you've published is called Altogether Different. I was wondering if you could tell us about that and about uh, what it, it has to say to the church today. I was, I was sitting in a, uh, what I call a parachurch. It's also known as Chick-fil-A. And uh, one of my colleagues came up and he goes, hey, I, I see this social identity handbook that you uh, edited. And wow. And I'm like, seriously? You, you, you read that? He goes, yeah, we, we should do something on cultural identities together. I'm going, oh, so he did read it. And, uh, and so uh, he, he was uh, my, my co-author, John Kessler, and and uh, he uh, taught in the applied theology area, and and he was talking a lot about cultural identities, and he was realizing that he didn't have a way to theorize about it, right? So they were just kind of picking and choosing, and uh, so we got talking about it, and we're like, okay, so yeah, maybe there's something here, and uh, because what we were seeing is there was just a lot of confusion over specific areas and uh, related to gender. Uh, related to kind of politics and, uh, you know, some of the uh, kind of more, more significant social issues that were going on um, in, in the last couple of years. And so uh, altogether different uh, really was a way to say, okay, most people that read the academic work, they're just going to go, yeah, I don't, and I don't know. I don't, I'm not getting that. And so this is really an attempt to, to put this in language uh, that, uh, that people could just grab a hold of easily and say, oh, I see what you're talking about. You're talking about the fact that the person sitting next to me in church uh, is an anti-vaxxer, and I'm not. And I don't know what to do with that. And I hear what you're saying about Romans 14 and 15 and bearing with those that are different views, and I don't know. you know. And, and so, so the answers oftentimes are just, personal identity. And I'm like, it's more than that because their perspective on that or whatever the next political issue is going to be that, you know, sets up to uh, help somebody continue to be in power. It's a social group. And, uh, and they, they don't see that. Uh, and so, so the idea here was to really say, you know, the, 
uh, the challenges here. If as a as a leader in ministry, if you're only focusing on individual behaviors, you're not going to get anywhere. Uh, you're going to miss, which is the bigger issue, which is the groups are part of. And uh, so I like to say, if you're going to be effective, you need to get in their shirt and pull out all the identities that are in their shirt pocket. And uh, because that will help you understand, oh, wow, the condition of whiteness is actually a problem for me. And, uh, and so I didn't know that. And I didn't know the gospel actually could say something about that. Oh, my, my view on materialism and my view on conspicuous consumption, actually, gospel like talks about that. And that these are seen as kind of natural, normal kind of categories, instead of saying these are actually problematic. And, uh, and so altogether different was really trying to say, okay, so what do you do uh, while you're being um, patient uh, with somebody? And so we talk about, uh, usually when there's arguments in church settings, people are cognitive misers. And uh, they're just using these kind of self-categorizations or social categorizations. And they, you know, kind of depersonalize and say, you're that, you're a red or you're a blue or whatever, instead of learning how to be cognitively generous. And, uh, and even to recognize that the categorizations aren't going away. It's just part of the way our brain works. Uh, but that we can say when we, when we pick up those stereotypes, that maybe those stereotypes are telling us there is there's a need that needs to be addressed. There's an injustice issue that needs to be addressed there. And so we don't, don't ignore just the stereotypes, but we actually push forward to try to figure out what those are actually telling us in terms of maybe what God wants us to do to be answers to the prayers that other people have. So, so then, Brian, as a final question, you've talked about how our identities need to be engaged with well, and especially in terms, in terms of conflict within our churches, um, that we need to be effectively relating to people as individuals rather than through the social groups that they are, um, that we construe them to be part of. Um, how would you then uh, say that that works its way back into uh, the churches and and indeed congregations and individual Christians within our churches uh, wrestling with supersessionism? Yeah, I mean, you know, sometimes I'll have students don't say, okay, I don't know what this is about. Are you some kind of like dispensationalist or something what's going on here? And that's like, oh my goodness, really? This is this is all you're getting, you know. You've been with me this long. This is what you get. And uh, and, and I think what, what happens is we've missed an opportunity to equip people with skills to address other identity-based concerns. So what we're saying is, and this is not original with me, uh, I think Willie James Jennings is helpful in this area to say. That since supersessionism was baked into Christian theology early on, we lost the resources necessary to address uh, theologically uh, the other identity-based concerns. And so we get Jewish identity right, then, then the principles that can emerge from that properly contextualized can help us address uh, the race problems, can help us address um, ableism problems can help us address gender-based problems and can really give us insight into the various aspects of identity uh, that uh, in some ways end up deforming uh, the body of Christ in the sense of uh, the witness that we can be uh, in a really divided uh, culture that we find ourselves in. Well, Dr. Tucker, thank you so much for, for joining us and for sharing all of your uh, insights about supersessionism and thinking through some of these uh, implications and how it has uh, influence the church and how we can think about cultural identity in different ways to 
to better handle other issues that the church is facing as well. And that there's these kind of, it's kind of this cluster of errors that we can uh, work against. So I appreciate all of that. Thanks for having me. Thank you.